A reading from John 20, verse 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon, Peter, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside in the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Happy Easter. He's risen? He's risen. He's risen. So, here we have, and this is true, uh, whether you believe it or not, but I'm, I'm guessing this is the nine o'clock service. Most of you guys are on board. Um, but here we have in this, this text, one of the most pivotal accounts in all of history and literature. Again, whether you believe it or not. We have to reckon with the implications. So much of what we know of history is shaped by this account of what happens on this morning outside of Jerusalem in the first century. Details, fairly basic. A woman goes to visit a borrowed tomb where her, de- where her dear friend is buried. This friend had utterly changed her life. And she had begun to hope that he was actually going to change so much more than her life, that he was going to change her people, bring promises that had been made centuries before to past. He was going to give them the nation they had hoped for. He was even going to change the world. But in the week before, all of those hopes had unraveled in a devastating week of disappointment. 
This friend, this man that she had loved and come to follow, he was betrayed and arrested. He was falsely accused. He was dragged through several rounds of questioning and trial. He was publicly beaten in a horrific way and then executed outside of the city for all to see. So, she's come several days later to perform burial rites, to anoint his body in the way of her people's traditions with oils and spices. What's she doing? She's doing what we all do when we suffer a tremendous loss. She's going through the grieving process, trying to mark the moments, to take part in the rituals that we do, to make sense of what kind of life will I have now that my previous vision of life has been shattered. The very finest and best and most noble of all things in human life. Think about them. Friendship and love and joy and hope and beauty and healing, they all have a stopping point. Death. Many of you have lost someone that you love dearly. I can't help think this time of year, every year since it happened, about standing in the room on a Sunday when my father's heart slowly just ticked down and down. He'd had a heart attack on a Thursday, and by Sunday, it was evident he wasn't coming back. We have to wrestle with that reality as human beings. <laughs> I mean, we can numb ourselves in all kinds of fantastic ways, and the ways are getting better, quite honestly. Your Netflix, your Netflix queue is better than it was five years ago, and you can only imagine the trajectory is going forward in a, in a fantastically distracting way. But we can numb ourselves so much, but we do have to ask the question, if we're honest, what do I have, what does my life contain that does not find its end in this inescapable reality of death? If we're honest with ourselves and we look at our history, this is the type of question that has troubled many throughout the ages. Leo Tolstoy puts it honestly and well. Listen to this. My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And so Mary Magdalene, on this Sunday morning outside of Jerusalem, is walking into the garden where there is a borrowed tomb and she is staring into that exact void. What do we have that death cannot take? However, and this is one of the most important howevers in all the world, she does not find what she expects. She does not get to carry out her simple act of grieving and honor for the departed and ritual and marking and hopefully trying to make some sense of the loss. Instead, Unexpectedly, she stumbles into a mystery of a missing body, of some really unexpected characters hanging around, and she ends up with a very curious case of a mistaken gardener. And if I ever write a Christian book, this shall be the title. And I shall try to write it in a British accent on the page. 
Hard to do. Hard to do. (laughs) So, try to imagine it with me. Mary turns up at the tomb, and she realizes something isn't right. She right away notices that the stone has been rolled away, and so she does what you do if it's early in the morning and probably not fully light out yet, and you're near a grave, and you recognize something isn't right. Unless you're in a horror movie, you don't just go check it out on your own. This is the point where you turn and go find a friend. So... She goes to find Peter and John, and they have this foot race back to the tomb. They eventually both go in and confirm that something has happened, but they aren't sure what it is. And then they leave. And Mary is there again on her own with her grief. And now the shock that someone has taken the body of her friend, that there is some scandal going on, some violation has occurred. Her friend that she had put so much hope in, her friend that had actually brought freedom and deliverance to her life, who she'd begun to think was the Messiah of Israel, her friend who had said he was inviting them into the actual kingdom of God, is now dead, and now his body is gone. So add to her grief and her loss, shock and violation. And we imagine her standing there, and she has this very short exchange, but it's full of meaning. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary is having an impossible experience. And so it, it takes a while for it to register. As a matter of fact, she's a bit like her ancestor Jacob, who not too far from this very location, centuries before, had said, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. That's the experience Mary is having. She's overwhelmed with grief. She's searching. And these are the two questions posed to her. It's almost like overly simple. She's at a tomb. The body's missing. Her friend is dead. And both the angels from heaven and Jesus himself are like, what's the matter? What, why are you crying? Who are you searching for? Those, those two questions, right? The obvious kind of questions perhaps that you would ask on the most surface level of a situation like this. And yet also these questions are immensely piercing. <laughs> these two questions actually get close to the deepest needs of the human experience. How do you make sense of the pain and brokenness of our world? How do you make sense of the pain and brokenness of your life and not be crushed by it or not just simply numb out? And then second, what are you searching for? What are you looking for most? So we'll just look quickly at at those questions. Why are you crying? Why have your hopes been dashed? What is wrong with the world? Why have we gotten so disturbingly comfortable or used to hearing news like we heard out of Belgium this week? Why is it just, oh, again? 
The agony and pain is breaking in and it's too much. It's, the statistics are too much. The regularity is too much. Our hearts can't contain it, right? You have that experience where statistics stop meaning anything to you and you have to hear a, a personal story of an individual, right? And, and then our hearts can have some way to access the pain, the broken reality of our world. Anyone who looks at the world long enough with enough honesty knows that things are troubling, troublingly broken in so many places and that includes our own hearts even. I'm so grateful for the scripture's honesty on this that they don't allow you to hold a shallow sentimentality that ignores the ugliness of the world. That God and the story he's telling are willing to fully face the realities of our world. Things are getting bad. <laughs> My wife, Allison overheard elementary school kids this week saying that they were going to have a bake sale to hire an assassin to take out Trump. Now, I hope there's no secret service listening to the recording of this service. But that's what they said. That's where the Park Slope youth are at today. They're ready to hire, have a bake sale to hire an assassin to take out Trump. I mean, they're just, things are getting bad. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, what Jesus is doing throughout Holy Week, through this week that we've just remembered, sharing a meal, washing feet, allowing himself to be arrested, saying nothing at his trial, experiencing the abuse, the beating, the crown of thorns, the, the, the mockery, even his execution. He is directly confronting the worst realities of our world, the things that break our hearts that cause us grief. He's directly confronting the worst realities of the world and he's saying these realities will not have the final word. That's the Easter message. These realities, this brokenness, this death, this evil, these headlines, these voices of shame in our heads, these worst things that we've done and things that have been done to us, our wounds, our, our idols, our addictions, our pains are not the final word. Our funerals are not the final word. But before we get to that moment, we have to be honest about them. We have to let ourselves weep. <laughs> the reality is there is much to be in agony about in our world. I've shared this one other time, but I love the honesty of Francis Spufford on this. He says this, peace is not the state of being we return to like water running downhill when there's nothing external to perturb us. Peace between people is an achievement a state of affairs we put together effortfully in the face of competing interests and primate dominance and our evolved tendency to cease our sympathy at the boundaries of our tribe. Peace within is made difficult to say the least by the way we tend to have actual emotional life going on. Peace is not the norm. Peace is rare. And when we do manage to institutionalize it in a human society, it's because we've been intelligently pessimistic about human proclivities and found a way to work within the grain of them in a system of intense mutual suspicion, like the U.S. Constitution, a document which assumes that absolutely everybody will be corrupt and power-hungry given half a chance. As for the inner version, I am not at peace all that often, and I doubt you are either. Mary is in the garden tomb, allowing the grief of the world to sink into her heart and having the appropriate reaction. She weeps. 
Our world is run through with brokenness and death, and Jesus is saying, whether you believe it or not, that he is willing to look at it all full in the face, take everything that it has, and come back and offer a different way. But we can't escape just putting the problem out there somewhere. We know that we have our fair share. Solzhenitsyn says the line of good and evil runs right through the human heart. We don't just suffer evil and brokenness in the world from out there. We, 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 we cause it ourselves. The Bible calls this problem sin. And even if it's not a terribly popular world, word, basically it means that we would like to be our own gods. Thank you very much. That we would like to curate our own happiness to the best of our abilities. That we'd like to meet the deepest needs of our life without having to consider God. Right? So this is the nine o'clock service. I know you guys know about sin, especially the the big ones, the the outward ones, the ones that are obvious. uh, Murder and racism and adultery. I, I grew up in a Baptist church and they specialized on the big public outward sins and, and talking about, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and how they were going to get you. I actually was with our, our music minister, and uh, he was looking at the church's bylaws from like the 1800s, and he found a little clause in the church, in this Baptist, rural Baptist church in South Carolina's original bylaws, and it outlawed twistification. Now, do you know what twistification is? Now, I'm sorry to do that in front of you on Easter. Twistification was dancing and it was a sin in the bylaws of the church. How fantastic is that? But the scripture is even more thorough than my Baptist church's bylaws. And it says, you know, it's, it's often not even the big outward things that are hurting us the most. It's, it's hidden pride and anger and envy and a sort of basic bent around selfishness and that the world sort of begins and ends at the cage of our own concerns. Again, I like how Francis Puffer describes this reality of of sin. And I've actually edited this quote a little bit to make it appropriate for Easter, and I'll let you guess where. But I like how he describes this. What I and most other believers understand by the word sin has got very little to do with yummy transgression. For us, it refers to something much more like the human tendency, the human propensity to foul up. Or let's add one more word, the human propensity to foul things up. Because what we're talking about here is not just our tendency to lurch and stumble and screw up by accident, our passive uh, role as agents of entropy. It's our active inclination to break stuff. Stuff here including moods, promises, relationships we care about, and our own well-being in other people's, as well as material objects whose high gloss positively seems to invite a big fat scratch. Now I hope we're on common ground. In the end, almost everyone recognizes this as one of the truths about themselves. You can get a long way through an adult life without having to acknowledge your own personal propensity, maybe even all the way through it, if you're someone with a very high threshold for obliviousness or with the kind of disposition that registers sunshine even when a storm is howling all around. But for most of us, the point eventually arrives when at least for an hour or a day or a season, we finally have to take notice of our HPTFTU, as I think I'd better call it. Human propensity to foul things up. (laughs) Easter is saying, Holy Week is saying, we need help repairing the world. We need help repairing our own hearts, our own lives. The scriptures go so far as to say that this is a matter of life and death. 
That Jesus has been to the cross on Good Friday in this account to confront sin and death and brokenness of evil, to take the worst that it can offer, and yet to say this is not the end. The Apostle Paul, writing to a church in a city of Corinth uh, a few years after this event, after this Easter morning, writes to summarize what Jesus did on the cross this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. This profound and strange exchange of that all that is ours, sin and death and brokenness and selfishness and evil, both personal and systemic in the world, is taken on by Jesus. And that mystery, that the reality, that forgiveness in the world really truly only comes when there is an absorption of the pain that is caused. So why does Jesus have to die? <laughs> because Going against God, who is the source of life, brings death into the world. And so Jesus absorbs the full cost of every one of our sins and mistakes and failures. And the sins and mistakes and failures of the world throughout generations and all the systemic evil. He absorbs it on the cross so that he can give us wholeness, holiness, new names, new life, resurrection. And so... Sunday morning has come and his friend Mary is looking for his body, but instead she's found this mystery. Her grief is intensifying. She's standing there weeping. And Jesus, who she does not recognize yet, asks her those two simple questions. What are, why are you crying and what is it that you are looking for? And she turns at this moment and mistakes him for the gardener. It's almost a throwaway phrase in the text. Thinking he was the gardener. Mary's feeling a little bold out of her grief at this point, thinking she, he was the gardener. She says, if you've hidden his body, tell me where he is and I'll go get him. You just think of like Mary dragging like, like never mind. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this phrase for a minute, thinking he was the gardener. This is John, the gospel writer, who includes certain details that he really wants us to know, like one, he's faster than Peter. In his youth, at least, they race to the tomb and he flat out beats him there. And he's like, I didn't go in. I wasn't showing off, but I was there first. <laughs> Peter charges right in, doesn't care about being unclean in the Jewish way, just storms right into the grave. By the time he's writing this account of Jesus' life, however, John, the gospel writer, he was a grandfather in the church and the other gospel accounts had been circulating, yet he was an eyewitness of Jesus' life. And so when John's the fourth gospel that's not a synoptic gospel is written, he's filling in details that are crucial for us to know that, that aren't maybe included in the other gospels so that we get a more full picture of who Jesus is. John actually summarizes his actual purpose for writing about Jesus in a letter he writes to the church later in his life. First John 1, and this is important. This is John's summary of why he's telling us the things he tells us about Jesus, okay? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. John is saying, literally, my, 
my, the fullness of my happiness in the world would be incompleted if I did not tell you what I had seen and heard in Jesus. That the eternal life he offers is one of you being invited into actual relationship with the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That this comes through life with Jesus. So John is in, has a huge stake in you understanding who Jesus really is. So, stay with me. He's not accidentally including a detail that Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. It is certainly a detail that he could have left out, but he wants us to know something. (laughs) That Mary is actually not wrong in her first guess. This man is the gardener. John has been trying to show us this for his entire gospel. John tells us in the first of his gospels that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The full counsel of of what God is like spoken to the world through a person, through Jesus. He tells us that this word, that Jesus was there at the first of creation. That's what John tells us at the very beginning of his gospel account. That he was in the garden. As a a matter of fact, he was the gardener. (laughs) Gardens are very important in the Bible. The whole narrative of the scripture actually begins and ends there. We start with a garden in Genesis, this place of paradise and intimacy with God and fullness and vibrant beauty, teeming with life, abundant in creation, but at the apex of it, people made in the image of God, spiritual beings made for union with him in a garden of innocence and protection and union with God. And, the, and revelation at the end, what you see is a city. And right in the heart of that city is a garden with a tree of life that we should recognize from that first garden. God is the gardener whom Adam and Eve walk with in the cool of the evening in the Genesis account. And that's what makes the fall so devastating to choose against that garden and to choose against that gardener, to choose against what we were actually created for, this union of intimacy with God and one another. What happens is there's this deception in the very beginning that is God really what he says he is? Can he really be trusted with your life? That deception comes in and the first sin is trying to get something good without God by breaking his word and going against his character. And what is lost among so much else is a garden. That place of intimacy and life with God, a place of vibrant and abundant life. And it's, it's significant that the way back to that first garden was blocked because we couldn't go on living there until the brokenness and death that had seeped into the world was dealt with. Don't miss this. God's entire project of redemption has been to confront all the things that ripped us from that first garden, sin and death, and to bring us back to himself. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he uses the imagery of a seed that grows into a tree that, that, that nourishes and shades and gives life. Garden imagery. When his disciples, right before his death, he's giving them the final instructions, carry the kingdom forward. He says, when you abide with me, when you are in that deep, continuous, intimate union with me, it's like you're a branch connected to a vine. And my father is the vine dresser. He prunes your life so that it may bear fruit. He tends your heart so that you may become who you were always meant to be. We need someone to tend our inner life, a gardener, to bear the fruit we were made for fruit of character, fruit of intimacy, fruit of relationship, fruit of participating in God's kingdom coming in the world as it is in heaven. Mary walks into a garden looking for Jesus and mistakes him for the gardener, but she is not wrong. 
This is the man whose death has won us a place back in our truest home in relationship with God. This is the one who can root out the hardened and dead places in our lives and bring life-giving water and true and lasting fruit. This is the one who has made a deposit in our future that we will be with him in a city that has no end with a garden in the middle of it where we are truly and forever home. On Good Friday on the cross, Jesus took all the sin that separates us both in nature and in choice from God. And on the cross, Jesus faced the death that is a result of our sin. And so the fact that he is alive in this garden means that he has won a victory and he is offering us a life that is truly life. Now, I know you're the nine o'clock service and you've heard that before, but I want you to hear that invitation to a life that is truly life. A life where the greatest things will not be taken from us, but where we will be truly home with God and one another. And what I'm saying, I'm not just saying, oh, wait, get your ticket stamped now and wait for heaven one day. I'm not just talking about some distant future reality in heaven. This is for an entirely new reality now. Eternal life in the New Testament sense begins in relationship with God, not when we get to some future place. It begins now in communion with the God who conquers death. T.S. Eliot puts it, puts it this way. To believe in the supernatural is not simply to believe that after living a successful, material, and fairly virtuous life here, one will continue to exist in the best possible substitute for this world, or that after living a starved and stunted life here, one will be con- con- compensated with all the good things that one has gone without. It is to believe that the supernatural is the greatest reality here and now. Let me tell you something on this Easter morning. You are a spiritual being meant for deep intimacy and union with God forever. To ignore or choose against that reality is a real kind of death. It is a significant diminishment of your life. And the way out of it is the same thing that happens to Mary. She hears her name called. I love that detail of the text. She's confused about who he is until he says her name. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the garden, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, you are known personally by God. His desire is to fully resurrect your life so that you live as you were intended, alive to him, alive to your own life, alive to your neighbor, alive to the world. And here's the reality. Some of you, many of you, I believe, he's calling your name this Easter morning. And whatever you think would keep you from him, your worst mistakes or your failure or shame, or perhaps maybe it's your achievements, your success, your illusion of control that you've got this. Maybe it's your sophistication and education and you think this this type of faith isn't for thinking people. And he's so lovingly willing to confront all those objections and all those fears and say, they don't have to keep you away. I'm calling your name. God is calling your name. And when she heard it, she turned to him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. Go instead to to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had, the things that he had said to her. 
The resurrection on Easter morning means that you can experience God the Father in the same way Jesus did because you can be brought into full union with him. And whatever you're thinking about your own life or how unrealistic that might seem or what barren does that have on my actual reality, Mary was a woman who we learn in Luke 8 was so broken and overrun with evil that she had seven demons cast out of her. She was, because of her place in society as a woman and with her past, she would not, been have allowed, would not have been allowed to be a witness in a court proceeding. She couldn't even legally tell people that Jesus was raised from the dead and it count in that way. Mary, who just a moment before literally thought everything was lost and her whole life changes because she hears God calling her name. She becomes, she becomes the first person ever to proclaim the gospel. Mary Magdalene, this woman who had been overridden by demons. She t- she's the one that tells the disciples that Jesus is ridden from the dead. Now here's the reality of Easter. If Jesus lived and died and raised from the dead, then it actually does have to change everything. I would not try to do an Easter service without a C.S. Lewis quote, and so here we go. <laughs> Christianity, if, if false, is of no importance. Truly, just go to brunch. Go run in the park. Live it up. If it's false, is of no importance, and if it's, tr- it's a, if it's true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It just can't be a once-a-year stop. Either Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive and we stop negotiating with him and we receive his love fully and full surrender because he's calling our name or we just say, you know what? I don't care if my name's being called. I'm happy being my own God. Jesus is saying when he calls your name and when he calls your name, I am alive and death is not the end. All you've ever done can be forgiven. You were made for life with God and deep love of people. Wake up, come to full life. One of my favorite stories in our church's history is um, my friend Emerson, uh, who a few years back, right around Easter, was at our service when we were meeting in the evening. And he'd been coming for a while because he was interested in a lady. Um, And that worked out. They're totally married. Um, (laughs) But he'd been hearing the gospel. He'd been hearing about Jesus. He'd been seeing it lived in community. And he left church early because he was going to the Lost series finale. That's important. I mean, what, where are these people? What is this island? (laughs) Some sort of purgatory thing. Um, So (laughs) Emerson's riding his bike to this Lost Series finale and he hears his name called. He'd been hearing the message. He'd been meditating, thinking about Jesus. But now he begins to have a personal experience with the love of God crashing into his life. And he pulls his bike off to the side of the road and he begins to pray. And right there on the side of the road, on the way to this Lost Series finale party, he gives his heart to God. And I think of my own story. How many of you know that moment where it just began to through all the haze of confusion, through the messages that you've heard your whole life or for the first time, you just begin to hear a voice calling you. You're mine. You're loved. You can be free. You can be different. What you've been before doesn't have to be what you are now. Whatever's defined you doesn't have to. You're you're mine. I love you. I've paid every price to embrace you forever. This is what you were made for. I'm calling your name. 
I'm calling you home. Some of you know this Easter morning that God is calling your name right now. Maybe for the first time and you need to respond in surrender to that love, in faith. Some of you felt your faith dying as of late. You remember a time when it was vibrant and white hot and now you struggle to hear God's voice. But maybe this morning you hear God inviting you home. And some of you need to remember that God is a gardener and he longs to walk with you in intimacy. He has places in your life to tend so that you will bear the fruit of your full life. Mary walks into the garden looking for Jesus. She thinks he's the gardener and she isn't wrong. But her heart melts and her life changes when he calls her name again. And he called her name before, but this time everything was different. He was on the other side of death. And we can be too. Let us confess together. Christ is risen. risen Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, beyond the points of this message, that you would speak to the innermost place of each person here in the secrets of our minds and hearts that we would hear you calling our name, that we would see that there need be no barrier to us coming to you because you have removed those barriers at the cross and you have conquered those barriers in your resurrection, that you're offering us a new life, a share in your kingdom. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would show us on this Easter morning how to participate in your resurrection, how to hear your voice and respond to your love with surrender, with obedience, with worship. I pray for our church in this way, in the name of Jesus, amen. I'm gonna give you a few moments to reflect right where you are. Honestly, just take this time to pray. Say, God, how are you speaking to me? How are you calling my name this morning? And then in just a few moments, I'll invite us to receive communion as we continue worshiping.